Sanjeev Gupta is a geologist very much involved in studying the rocks of Mars. He explains to Michael Barclay how astronomy and music help him to appreciate his own importance in the universe. You can hear the rest of the interview in Private Passions on BBC Sounds. Professor Sanjeev Gupta is a scientist who takes the long view, the very long view, into deep time. The Royal Society Leverhulme Trust Senior Research Fellow at Imperial College London, he investigates how landscapes have evolved over vast spans of time. His work as a geologist has meant camping out alone for months at a time in some of the world's most remote places, including the Himalayas, and the American deserts. And closer to home, he studied exactly how Britain became an island. And Sanjeev Gupta is also part of a team of hundreds of scientists working on one of humanity's most ambitious expeditions ever, NASA's $3 billion Perseverance Mars rover, which is helping us to understand what that planet was like an astonishing three and a half billion years ago. The team's searching for evidence of ancient life in rocks on the Red Planet, rocks that will hopefully be returned to Earth for analysis in 2031. Well, back to the 18th century for the first of Bach's partitas for keyboard, played by Igor Levitt. I can't help wondering whether, as a scientist, it's not the patterns in Bach's music that's particularly appealing to you. Yes, as a scientist myself, as a geologist, I look for patterns in nature. You know, it's it's not chaos out there. You do look for patterns to try and explain what you see. And I, I just love the patterns in Bach. But I'm also drawn to Bach just because of the emotional variety. I mean, I could have eight Bach pieces on this programme because he, he just covers that all full range of emotional feeling. You know, you can hear this the joy in some of the cantatas. And for me, the keyboard works allow me sort of time for introspection you know time to quietly think about your life and you know life in general it allows you to explore your thoughts Igor Levitt performing the Saraband from the Partita Number no. 1 in B-flat by Johann Sebastian Bach. Your work, Sanjeev, deals with such huge spans of time, billions of years. I do wonder how and if it affects your view of your own lifespan, your own mortality. Yeah, I think when you're out in a landscape on Earth or you're 
exploring Mars. And actually, with Mars, we're so busy with operations, sometimes we don't actually think about what we're doing because, it's, you know, you're, you're trying to make plans and it, you have to get them done in time, etc. But when you actually take the time to look at some of these images and see this landscape that's existed for billions of years, you have a sense of both the smallness of you as a human being and the, the, the relatively small breadth of time that you have on Earth, but also it gives you a sense of how vital you are, of your humanity. And, you know, sometimes people say, so why do we spend so much money going to Mars? You know, why would we want to do it? And I think for me, seeing Mars in those images gives you a, a sense of, actually helps you think about Earth and the sense of beauty of Earth. You know, when you see those desolate landscapes and you see our beautiful even in the deserts on Earth, you know, even when I'm out in New Mexico, there's life everywhere. There's stunted trees, there's little bushes. You can hear birdsong and it gives you a sense of aliveness. And it's those moments when you're immersed in such landscapes that you really think hard about your own life and making the most of it in some ways.
Claire Balding has a series on Radio 4 called Ramblings, where she explores interesting parts of Scotland's west coast. We hear her now talking to David Alloway, who is a guide round the island of Iona. We've made our way down to the track so we can easily walk three abreast. And David, you mentioned that most of the crofters have a couple of other jobs. Now, you have many jobs, do you not? <laughs> I'm not sure how many I do actually have. But, yeah, no, the, the guiding is one of them. I do a lot of maintenance work and building work and uh, refurbishments in the hotels in the winter. I'm also uh, a photographer to trade, so I still keep my hand in that. And that's developed into a little bit of painting as well now. Actually, through last year in lockdown, having the time, I just started developing that. And that's actually grown into something a little bit more now. And, and I'm selling a few, so things are things have, a positive come out of last year. And I'm also a firefighter as well in the island. And I, I volunteer, I'm a first responder for the ambulance service as well and various other bits and pieces. So, yeah, I, I really like that mix, that sort of, there's not a monotony in it at all. As a guide, not only do you know the topography of the island, you also know its history. And the thing that Iona is most famous for is, is the religious community here. When, when was it founded and who by? That's in Columba. St Columba, an Irish monk, he set up a monastery on Iona and started to spread Christianity into the whole of north of Britain, really. And that's really the, the reason that the community started here on Iona and, the, and ultimately now the abbey on the same site that he had originally set up his monastery on, which is now run by the building and fabric and things that look after by Historic Scotland. But the... I own a community, the religious community that live within the Abbey itself and run the services in the Abbey and, and that side of, of things in there. They were established in, in 1930. That grew into what's, what the Iona community is now. Are you playing in the open? Yeah. Oh, good luck. Okay. The golfer just come by on a bicycle. So he's got his golf clubs on his back and he's heading off to play in the open because I'm guessing that's the golf course up ahead of yeah, us. we're just about to hit the golf course, yeah. That little bike that that chap's on looks like it's been dug out of a garage where it may have sat for 50 years. It's covered in rust and it's for a child of about six. And he is not six. <laughs> it's a place with a wonderful character and, and a lot of people talk about the, the, the spiritual um, aura of Iona. What, what do you feel about the place and how would you describe it? Iona's, I think it's much, it's much older than that. When Columba arrived here, it wasn't an empty landscape. It was a populated landscape with people living here. And the more I walk across it and explore it, I'm realising the one of the things that would I think would draw people here thousands of years ago, 10,000 years ago or so, would be the, the landscape and the, the climate here, actually. I know it's strange saying this today, and there is tiny little patches of blue sky just starting to appear. But it's a much sunnier climate than even Mull. We're surrounded by the, the Gulf Stream. That it's like a warm blanket of sea round about us. You know, it still gets cold with wind chill in the winter, but we don't see frost and snow. For its size and scale, it's just another small island in the west coast of Scotland, but it's, it's got such more significance because of Columba, yes. But I think its, it's positioning, its, its geography had a lot to, to bear on that. We've crossed on to the Iona Golf Course. The flags at the gate 
1905 it was established and we can see golfers assembling. And is this macker now? Yeah, is that so what this grass we'll is? We passed through that gate and we would yeah. call this the macker. It's very, very sandy, so it's, it's, it's almost self-fertilising. Every year the wind blows another layer of sand over it from the beach. And it's shell sand that's here, it's pure shell, so it's, it's like a, a calcium-rich fertiliser just being naturally sprayed every, every year. And you create this very, very thin turf layer, which supports this incredible species mix of, of wildflowers and, and, and then obviously the, the insects and things that, that thrive on that too.
Malcolm Guite spoke at the 2019 Abbey Summer School in Edinburgh. Malcolm is chaplain of Girton College in Cambridge and has written several books of poetry. Here he reads his sonnet about the saint who left Ireland and came to Iona, Columba. I experienced something of a, an epiphany, a sudden sense of connectedness and intuition, uh, standing on the shore at Glen Columkeela, from whence Columba set sail for Iona. Um, I stood there when I was 19, and not a believer at the time, but I suddenly felt um, called and drawn by something about this saint, whose name, Colm, is also woven into mine. Malcolm. So, Columba. You called me, and I came to Columkeela to learn at last the meaning of my name. Though you yourself were called and not the caller, he called through you, and when he called, I came. Came to the edge at last in Donegal, where bonfires burned and music lit the flame, as from the shore I glimpsed that ragged sail, the spirit filled to drive you from your home, a fierce dove racing in a fiercer gale, a swift wing flashing between sea and sky. And with that glimpse, I knew that I would fly and find you out and serve you for a season, my heaven hidden like your native isle, though somehow glimmering on each horizon. Thank you.
have heard the saying, a prophet is not without honour, except in his own country. Mary Addo talks about the experience of Jesus as he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Have you ever read a book and were so engrossed in the story that without realising it, you had also vividly imagined the characters? In your mind's eye, you could see the various settings and the characters involved. And when you heard they were making a, the book into a film or a TV series, you got a tad excited. You have imagined what the character looks like, their tone of voice, their mannerisms. You turn on the TV or go to the cinema and as the story unfolds before you, you find yourself a little disappointed. It might be at the portrayal of the main character or you wonder where these additional prominent characters came from because they weren't in the book or why the plot has changed or even the ending or the scenes are so dark in order to portray the grim setting the story takes place in that you almost have to squint to see the people on the screen. On the other hand, you might be really happy that the main character is exactly as you imagined, so much so that when you reread the book, the character takes on the physical attributes of the actor and it changes and enhances your whole experience of reading the book. So, for example, for me, David Sushi will now always be Hercule Poirot in my imagination. Though why Captain Hastings appeared in some of the on-screen adaptations in the Poirot series, like Evil Under the Sun, when he wasn't in the book, grates a little, but not too much. Today, we think about what happens when Jesus reveals himself to be the fulfilment of God's words spoken through his prophets and recorded in scripture. The setting for this drama is a synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. We're told it's also the synagogue he attended regularly when he lived there. Luke wants us to grasp the fact that Jesus is a devout Jew. He's familiar with Jewish scriptures, the law and the prophets. So when Jesus reads aloud the passage from Isaiah, he knew, and the people listening to him would know, that this is a reference to God's anointed one, the longed-for Messiah, the one who would bring in God's kingdom on earth. Have you ever wondered how he read it? I imagine it to be with authority, emphasising particular words or phrases, because he not only knows that they reference God's anointed one, but that these words are speaking of him. Then I imagine he slowly rolls up the scroll and sits down. We're told the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Is there a deep and expectant silence? Does time appear to stand still as they wait for him to speak? Perhaps Jesus casts his eye around the synagogue. After all, these are his neighbours, his childhood friends, the, the people he grew up around. But Jesus' ministry didn't begin here. It began in the towns around the Lake of Galilee. He was based in Capernaum. 
He had gained a reputation as a remarkable speaker and a worker of miracles, and word had reached his hometown of Nazareth of the amazing things this local son had been doing. Now he has returned, and because everyone in the town knows him, they know that he will be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. They all turn out to hear him. It also appears that they're hoping he will do among them some of the miracles he's done in other towns. He read from scripture, all eyes on him. Then he speaks. No preamble, no illustration, straight to the point. Words spoken with authority, with certainty and with power that seems to come from deep within him. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The people of Israel had God's scripture as part of their life for generations. These words from Isaiah had been read again and again. They had a picture in their minds of what God's promised saviour would be like and what he would do. Now suddenly they have Jesus before them, a living person who is not only going to put God's laws into action, he's saying he is the fulfilment of the words of the prophets. Initially, it seems that this was good news to his hometown listeners. Yes, it was a big claim, but think about what the Messiah was going to do. For generations, they've heard that the Messiah will be for the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, those imprisoned in some sort of darkness because of economic difficulties, political oppression, physical and spiritual limitations or because of social status. God's promise was that the Messiah would shed a light that will set them free. There would be justice, forgiveness, healing. What's not to like about what Jesus says? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. I can hear it almost as local boy makes good. But then the mood changes as Jesus challenges them. Do they really accept him as a fulfilment of the prophet's words? Or do they just want what they can get from him, thinking they're in a privileged position because they know him? Then he goes on to remind them that in the history of Israel, prophets aren't usually accepted by their own people. But more than that, one of their most famous prophets, Elijah, wasn't sent to one of the many widows of Israel, but instead went to a foreigner. His protege, Elijah, did something similar, bypassing many lepers in Israel and healing a foreigner. Jesus shines the light of truth into their exclusive, limited perspective. He's not saying that God won't bless Israel but rather a central message of Jesus' teaching as Luke presents it is that God's promise is for everyone. So did the people think that they would get special privileges when Jesus set up his kingdom simply because he was one of them? Did they think that God's promise was exclusively for the people of Israel or indeed their own local congregation? Did they think it was all about physical healing and were they missing the spiritual aspect within God's promise? It appears that this is the case, because they do not respond well to the challenge. Instead, they turned on him. 
He wasn't the Messiah they had imagined when they read about him. I think there are probably a number of challenges in this reading for us today. Are we, like the people of Jesus' hometown, more inclined to want to see something visible, something physical, something spectacular, something clearly supernatural in the way of miracles, rather than see someone's life transformed because of their encounter with Jesus? Is there anyone we wouldn't want to be part of God's promise of inclusion, forgiveness, justice, healing, because we have labelled them different from us, not one of us. Do we share Jesus' concern for the marginalised, the vulnerable, and for those beyond the boundaries of our local congregation or our nation? And what do we make of the words and deeds of Jesus, which are written down as part of God's holy scriptures? It might be tempting to keep words about Jesus on the printed page safe within the, a book, study them and perhaps even analyse them. But we're called to take them out of the book, to become part of the story ourselves, to live them, to act upon them on the world stage and to do so with love. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, gives us what is considered to be the best description of love ever written. It's not about romantic love or desire, rather it's a love unsullied by self-interest. Yes, we might see it as an ideal, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be strived for. Jesus fulfilled the ideal of love that Paul speaks about. He was kind. He never envied anybody or boasted about himself. He was patient, especially with his disciples who never seemed to just quite get it. He didn't see rudeness as a response to things said to him or about him. He wasn't selfish and he did not easily take offence. He didn't keep harking back to the wrong people did. He never lost his trust in God or his hope in him and he never stopped loving. Paul tells us things fade and pass away, but love endures. The kind word, the kind deed, the words of solace shared the words of life imparted. These will never pass away. Though I speak with the voice of the wisest of men, though I sing like an angel above, though I order a mountain to move down the glen, still I'm nothing at all without love. Though I tell of the future, interpret the signs, even fly through the air like a dove. Though I make myself homeless to die in the flames, still I'm nothing at all without love. For the love that I sing of is fearless yet kind, never thoughtless nor selfish nor rude. It is health to the sickly and light to the blind And to those who are hungry it's food Heavenly food, life-giving food Someday when the voice of all mankind is still 
his achievements like leaves down a drain. When hope becomes certain and faith becomes clear, the love of our Father remains. For the love that I sing of is fearless yet kind, never thoughtless nor selfish nor rude. It is health to the sickly and light to the blind, and to those who are hungry it's food. Heavenly food, life-giving food Someday when the voice of all mankind is still His achievements like leaves down a drain When hope becomes certain and faith becomes clear The love of the Father remains the love of the Father